I'm Graham Rose, and this podcast traces my attempts to unravel a family mystery. The unsolved 62-year-old murder of my great-uncle, Fred Jeffs. The police are looking for a killer, but the clue to identifying him, and they assume it is a him, may be through a mystery woman seen in Jeffs' sweet shop earlier on Maundy Thursday. Fred was seen giving her chocolates and mouthing the words, I'll see you later. But no one recognises her. She has not come forward and the police have been unable to trace her. Episode 4. The Mystery Woman. Part 1. Fred and Betty. Fred and his wife Betty were married in Quinton Parish Church on a rainy day in February 1948. But by September of 56, six months before the murder, they'd gone their separate ways. Fred's sister Ivy is convinced that he's been seeing a girlfriend in the months leading up to his death. But police say there's no evidence of this before the marriage breakup. But what do others remember of Fred and Betty as people? He was such a friendly sort of chap, well liked. I don't think anybody around the area had a bad word to say about him. He wasn't very friendly towards people. He'd pass the time of day with you, but he wasn't sort of jovial or anything. He was serious. No disrespect, he wasn't on my wavelength. I wouldn't describe him as a, as, as a stunning sort of personality at all. <laughs> he, he was a miserable blighter. He wasn't particularly tall, he wasn't short. He wasn't thin, he wasn't slenderish, dark hair. Thinnish face, dark head. I think he wore glasses on. He wore glasses. Dark haired fellow. Dark, darkish hair from what I can remember. I know he wore dark framed glasses. Rimless spectacles, like octagonal shapes. I think he wore a cabinet. Well, I wouldn't class him as ugly. He hadn't got a lot going for him. I mean, he was always very pleasant, don't get me wrong. Not to attract such a very, very attractive wife. She was a gorgeous-looking female, Betty. She looked a, bit, a little bit Greek, a bit like a Greek goddess, you know. She had long black hair. She was extremely pretty, but he, he was nothing to shout about at all. I don't know. He, he was certainly punching above his weight, you know. Excuse me. But he lived opposite. That's how they met. Him and his big sports car. Well, your mum never mentioned anything about a wife. No. Bit of a lush, maybe. Bit of a lush. That's why we think she married the wrong man. Because Fred wasn't exciting at all, you know. When he came for Christmas, it always came on his own. He was always on his own. Because I remember my mum telling me that um, his, his wife had left him. Now, we don't know why. Nobody ever knew why. Uh, but she did. This James did this by leaving. Oh no, that was separation. I don't need exactly know that. I think she they does know, but she don't want to tell you. All right. Several years into their as yet childless marriage, Fred buys his wife Betty an anniversary gift. A dog. Pepe, yeah. 
Pero. Pero, was it? Yeah. Pero, yes, he was a black poodle. Miniature poodle. And I remember the dog, because, I mean, I've always loved animals, so, yes, I remember the dog very, very well. I didn't well. like dogs like that. He was like a poodly dog. Black. A miniature black poodle that they name Pero. It's Spanish. It means dog. The very naming of the dog suggests something a little more exotic, more cosmopolitan, more aspirational. And although given as a present to Betty, Pero and Fred become inseparable. And after Betty moves out in September of 56, the dog stays with Fred. Perhaps that's what Fred wanted, uh, devoted loyalty, you know. You only get that from a dog, really. In the aftermath of Fred's murder, the marriage is providing a source of speculation for the newspapers. Betty finally capitulates and agrees to an interview with the Birmingham Evening Mail. It first appears in the 6.30 edition on Wednesday the 24th of April, five days after the discovery of Fred's body. And it's printed with the heading, My Life with Jeffs. In it, Betty speaks of the marriage the fact that her husband had been in the army, that she was a clerical worker, that they'd known each other for many years, that she carried on working after the marriage, and that together they'd saved to start the business they both wanted. In 1953, after the end of sweet rationing, they had opened the sweet shop in Quinton. Betty's words here are drawn from that article. Gradually the marriage began to break up. We parted seven months ago and I went to live in Bentley Heath. He stayed on in the shop. I had not seen my husband at all this year, but I had a number of telephone conversations with him, mostly about the business. Questioning the ownership and future of the business, Betty is asked what will happen to Jeff's sweet shop. Actually, that is a matter for legal discussion. The reporter then asks Betty what she knew about her husband's involvement with other women. In my telephone talks with him, he never in any way hinted that he was carrying on or having night meetings with other women. The whole of his nightlife is a blank to me. I have no idea what he did during those hours at all. Hearing that he had been out at night with other women had come as a very great surprise to me. At this point, Betty is noted wiping a tear from her eye. Although our marriage had broken down, I had a great fondness for him. He was a very, very pleasant man. Betty's father, Frederick Cooper, had been in the shop the day before the murder for some tobacco and observed of his son-in-law. He seemed quite happy, without a care in the world. He would go to any amount of trouble to help a customer and was an astute businessman with a sound trade. There was no animosity between my family and Jeff's and I did not ask any questions when my daughter left him. I know this, he still worshipped the ground that Betty walked on. After the inquest, it emerges that Betty left Fred for another man. And without a will, she inherited the entire proceeds of the estate, worth 4,938 pounds, no shillings and 11 pence gross. Oh, and she also inherited a poodle. Within a year, she is remarried and is living in a leafy part of Soli Hall with a baby on the way. We're talking the world. <laughs> <Soli> Hall. <laughs> Meanwhile, Perro, the only known witness to the murder, 
would be renamed Scruffy Dog in an attempt to erase a connection to a dark past. It should be pointed out that at no point in the police investigation was Betty considered a suspect. And while we're in the business of clearing names, my granddad, Doug, Fred's brother, was considered a suspect after his fingerprints were discovered all over Fred's van. He'd been looking at Fred's van with a view to buying a similar one for his own business. And this was his alibi, as my auntie Liz explains. The night that Fred was killed, Dad took Mum and apparently myself at night for a ride round in his new van. So he'd have gone down the garden to the garage and out that way down the back lane and he took us for a ride in his new van. So obviously nobody could account for his movements. Nobody would have seen him. The next day, the police came to the house and they didn't tell him that Fred had died. And they took him in for questioning. Now, this is all what Mary's told me this morning. That's my Auntie Mary, Liz's big sister. And she said that as far as... My dad didn't know what had happened to Fred, and as he seemed to think in his mind, um, the only explanation was that Fred had bumped Betty off. Because they had a very volatile relationship, apparently. Okay. Um, So throughout the questioning, Dad wasn't aware that Fred was dead. With the heat of the police investigation getting uncomfortably close to home, it's time for some fresh air. And where better to take the dog a walk than Warley Woods on a spring evening? I played golf at Warley, Warley Woods. You've got the, the clubhouse there, you've got the first hole went up that way, and the eighth hole went up that way to the water tower. And the one night I was playing, it would be seven, half past seven, and uh, I saw Fred Jeffs, and I saw him walking his dog. And I thought, that's strange, that's Fred Jeffs. I've never ever told this to anybody. So I went back home and having my tea and... And I said to my mother, oh, uh, you'll never guess who I saw today, the back of the eighth tee, walking his dog, like a little terrier thing. I said, it's Fred Jeffs in the sweet shop. And she said, yeah, that's where he goes to meet the women. I don't know, it's just the monkey running. If you say to somebody, you went up Wallywoods, that dog go, oh, like that. Yes, yes, yes. It had that sort of reputation. Used to pick <laughs> nasty women yeah, did you know? And the woman, where we was, was like, um, how can you explain? She was like uh, a shagger, like somebody. And and Jeff's like the women. I think that's all I can say. During the course of their investigations, police interview several women of dubious character who come forward to eliminate themselves from the inquiry. They say they recognise Fred, but did not necessarily know him by name. Based on eyewitness descriptions, Birmingham male cartoonist Liu Platt creates an artistic impression of the mystery woman seen in the shop on Maundy Thursday. It's published nationwide on Friday the 26th of April, 
the day of Fred Jeff's funeral. From her own memory, Fred's sister Ivy describes the woman as being a rather nice girl and the picture as a good likeness. Episode 4, Part 2 Fred and the Mystery Woman Over the following weekend, 37 people contact the police thinking that they recognise her from the artistic impression. Several Worley residents say they believe they think the image might be a local girl known for being fond of rock and roll. Some of the other suggestions proved to be quite outlandish. Take, for example, 23-year-old Valerie Gaunt, an actress living in London whose parents are from Edgbaston. She is rudely awoken in the night by Scotland Yard detectives. I was asleep in my flat last night when two plain-clothes detectives knocked on my door. They told me a man calling himself Jay Barker had telephoned to say that if they wanted to find the mystery brunette, they should call it my flat. I was astonished. I've read of the murder in the newspapers, but I've never heard of Jeff's before, nor Barker. Valerie Gaunt was a former member of the Wensbury Hippodrome Company and had just finished filming The Curse of Frankenstein, the original Hammer Horror movie, about to be released on the 2nd of May, making her a star. In the film, Frankenstein has brought the creature to life, but unfortunately with a damaged brain that has left it violent and psychotic. Valerie plays Frankenstein's maid, Justine, who claims she's pregnant by him and threatens to tell the authorities about his strange experiments if he refuses to marry her. She doesn't last long in the story. Another candidate for the mystery woman was identified by the Smethwick Telephone in their edition on Friday the 3rd of May. The beautiful 19-year-old Smethwick secretary who was grilled by police for nine hours in connection with the Jeff's murder, told a telephone reporter that she is considering legal action against national newspapers which have dubbed her a good-time girl. Tall, blonde Miss Diane Mannering, who spoke to Jeff's outside his Quinton shop on the night he was murdered, said... I refuse to speak to reporters, yet they've printed that I said I didn't know Jeff's was married and that he had fooled me. I absolutely deny that. They also called me a rock and roll girl. It's absolutely ridiculous. My mother is furious and she's discussing the matter with the solicitor. Mr Ray Daffin, manager of the Waterloo Road Travel Agency where Diane worked, said Papers had given the impression that Miss Mannering was a good time girl. It's shocking Tommy rot, he declared. She is a highly intelligent girl with a perfectly good reputation. Miss Mannering had been questioned for three hours at Worley Police Station and six at Steelhouse Lane Police Station. I've known Mr Jeffs for about 11 months as a customer in his shop. He's always been charming and gentlemanly towards me. I can't believe some of the filthy things they're saying about him. A speculation runs rife and the press turn their attentions to the more salacious aspects of the case. We start to lose sight of Fred as a victim. In fact, there's a suggestion that he starts to become implicated in his own tragic demise. Could it be that in some way he had it coming to him? 
In a different story altogether, we learn of a young woman living on a street in Cape Hill. Records show that the family are living in the house throughout the mid-50s, but that in 1957, they disappear suddenly. Terry is only seven years old at the time, but something that his mother said to him has stayed with him to this day. And I, I would be about seven or thereabouts, and uh, periodically my mum would say, I always reckon that girl who lived, it was two doors, oh, I thought it was three doors, it's two doors. She'd say, I always reckoned uh, she had something to do with that murder. My mum thought she was involved. But so, she was called Rosie, wasn't she? Yeah, he referred to her as Rosie, whether that's Rose or Rosemary. And also but, she was dark-haired, wasn't she? Yeah, and um, the thing that made my mother put two and two together and make five was because after they'd been looking for this dark-haired girl, not long after she committed suicide, was she pregnant at the time? Was that the, the reason she was uh, up at the shop with Mr. Jeffs? I don't know. Possible pregnancy? Retribution from a family member? Later, suicide? If you drive down that road today, the neatly trimmed hedges and trees from the late 1950s are all gone. And the number 13, where Rosie lived, is also gone, replaced by 11A. Whether or not Rosie's story got back to the police is uncertain. But they were starting to believe that revenge might be a motive. From the Birmingham Post, on Monday the 29th of April. The police believe it is possible there is a revenge motive for the murder. That a relative, or someone close to the girl with whom Jeffs was believed to have made a date, killed him in anger. The girl's close association with the murderer may be preventing her giving information to the police. It's also thought possible that Jeffs and the mystery girl may have been followed in another vehicle and surprised when they stopped at a Birmingham park. On Saturday the 27th of April, 50 officers and 12, 18 or 20 dogs, depending on which paper you read, begin a search of the 100 acres of Warley Woods. Eyewitnesses remember policemen shimmying up trees in an attempt to find any concealed evidence that might provide a clue to the location of the initial attack and murder, or in the hope of finding Perro's missing red studded dog collar. All they find is a cigarette case and a half a set of false teeth. By Sunday the 28th, house-to-house -house inquiries start with 25,000 homes in the Worley and Quinton areas visited over the next 10 days. The inquiries are coordinated by the Worcestershire Constabulary out of Worley Police Station, with a mobile police van parked outside number 12 Stanley Road. Houses were checked off on a huge street map specially made for the inquiry. 60 officers conduct the inquiries, carrying with them copies of the police sketch of the mystery brunette and an eight-point questionnaire with questions including where were you on Thursday April the 18th how many people over 16 are there in your house did you shop at Jeff's sweet and tobacco store did you know Jeff's have you seen his picture in the papers police came to interview people. I think they covered quite a, an I area. I remember the knocking on the door yeah. and asking yeah. if we'd yeah. nailed anybody or seen yeah. anything. I remember that, yeah. 
because we were shocked about that. But I lived in Pheasant Road down here, so they did do a good circuit. And the Oval, they come up the Oval yes. as well. I remember. Hurst Road. They came on Good Friday. It was over that Easter holiday anyway. And they wanted to know what you were doing and where father was and you know where he worked and what did we do at night time and what time did you come home and which way did you come home and but they were very concerned about our safety too not only uh, knowledge but what do you do in the evenings do you go out you know on your own and yeah so people were scared from the post-mortem Police could tell that Fred had been drinking on the night of the murder, but they did not know where. They focused their inquiries at a number of local pubs which Fred was known to frequent. The Cock and Magpies, Hagley Road West, and more crucially, the Abbey, on the junction of Three Shires Oak Road and Abbey Road, named after the magnificent neo-Gothic Abbey at the heart of the Worley Park Estate. In 1957, Worley Abbey was in the process of being demolished. The Abbey pub in Bearwood is also identified as the pub where Fred was seen drinking two or three days before his death. He was seen sitting and chatting with a young brunette, a slightly older blonde and a thick-set man carrying a camera. The police named the three people they want to interview as a photographer nicknamed Flashlight Fred and his two pretty girl companions, Babs and June, all believed to be from Kidderminster. It was later thought that Flashlight Fred had disappeared to a seaside location for the summer, but none of the three were ever traced. Flashlight Fred introduces us to the idea that Fred Jeffs is connected to something bigger, the photographer with two pretty women in tow. Echoes, perhaps, of a seedier underworld reminiscent of Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, with its subterfuge, blackmail and, well, who knows, pornography? It also moves us further away from the idea of robbery as the sole motive. Who has Fred got himself involved with? Join us next time for episode five. Fred Jeff's The Sweet Shop Murder is created by me, Graham Rose, with original music and sound design by Fox and Russia. Additional voices from Eleanor Coleman and direction from Steve Johnston. This podcast series is made possible with the support of Black Country Touring, and the original theatre production was supported by the Birmingham Rep and the Arts Council of England. If you'd like to rate, review, or tell us who done it, please get in touch. Hashtag Fred Jeff's. <laughs>